Heat Seeking Panther, Miles and Dave, talking about Nicholas Cage. Okay. Dude, Miles, yeah. you forgot something really important. What? The panther sound effect. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which one is it? Uh, I think it's the one that this panther roar that's 19 seconds. Where is it? <laughs> I don't know if you could hear that on your end, even, but uh, that's a, you know what? It's so interesting because to watch you guys do this, because the way we do our show, everything's edited, including all sound effects. But that's brilliant, just to have it on your phone and just like play it into the mic. Yeah, yeah. it it saves some time on the back end. It adds like a nice uh, lo-fi. Um, I, th- I think that's that's really the most uh, charitable uh, <laughs> way that you can look at that. <laughs> so, um, three cubs in the den. Welcome yep. to Heat Seeking Panther. Um, Efren Schoenier, uh, thank you for joining us. It's a, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you. So you are and have been a lifelong Nicolas Cage fan. Lifelong, pre-life, I think in the womb, I, I feel. My mom was watching Valley Girl in the womb. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, you told us before we started taping that after Adaptation came out, you watched every Nick Cage movie. <laughs> That's true. And, and I, I told you I didn't do it professionally like you guys. I just did it for fun. Right. <laughs> um, so that means that you watched all the shitty ones too, like uh, Time to Kill. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And uh, Firebirds. Firebirds. <laughs> yeah. But the uh, uh, or guarding, guarding Tess. Guarding right? Tess. That was I think it. that was our you least know, favorite. That's a, ten, that's a tender one. That's actually a tender one. I, it, it did not. It felt, I felt my brain got tender. But <laughs> Yeah, it was... Uh, not our. I, we, we've now started using it as like the low point. Yeah. Of of uh, we now compare all bad cage movies to guarding tests is now like the the floor. I think yeah. that, that we hit. I mean, time to kill. Uh, we watched on like a deteriorating VHS that was like <laughs> it was like literally like d- disintegrating there, as we watched it. There'd be some scenes where the whole screen would just go white. <laughs> and like and like the the audio soundtrack would just drop out for a second. So and still, I, it was better than Guarding Tess. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was still more uh, fun to watch than Guarding Tess. Well, that's great that you you're a scholar as well as us. So, have you continued watching all of them? Like, are you up to date? No, I'm not up to date, and probably haven't been up to date since adaptation. I've seen you know several since, but nowhere near the level of fandom that I had back then. I mean, he, his output really ramped up and he was already yeah. like a hardworking actor. Like, he uh, needs to make that money. Yeah. He's make money. Yeah. He's got it. I mean, if you're going to buy pyramids, you got to have the gold to, right. <laughs> that's not a metaphor. Um, he, I mean, actually going into leaving Las Vegas, uh, he's, he started filming this directly after kiss of death. Like he had like two weeks of a break or something, um, which I guess to like prepare for this role, he uh, he, he had to like he he went on like a long bender. Uh, he went <laughs> he went to Ireland um, for two weeks with uh, his friend, videotaping him as he just binge drank and like videotaping what he uh, how he acted as an alcoholic. And uh, they drove around town uh, in in. They had a chauffeur with a monocle drive them around <laughs> Ireland, and uh, he. Uh, there's one story about they stayed at a castle called Leap Castle, where there was a a ghost, an apparition that's known for being really smelly, and they they brought him like legs of lamb to the ghost and waited for him to appear, but uh, didn't happen. <laughs> no luck. So, and, uh, but the point of this is that he he went from like this like bulked up, jacked. Uh, role of little junior brown in, in kiss of death and, and uh then just immediately like started eating fast food and just like bringing his body down to just like make himself feel like shit basically i mean he looks haggard in this movie like he yeah. does really look fucked up in in leaving yeah. las vegas um and i actually sometimes found myself wondering if he if he was drunk like if he was actually drunk while he was mm-hmm. filming it 
but it sounds like even if he like whether or not he was for the actual shoot no. he apparently did the method acting yeah uh, he, he did all the research beforehand and then apparently the only scene he was actually drunk for is the scene where he like flips over the casino table oh yeah okay but yeah otherwise he was just uh he was a consummate professional yeah i mean i think that's where it where it goes to the level of craft is that he can see he you know took the moment to see what he's like when he's drunk studied that and then brought that into the film rather than trying to be drunk during the film where right. there's no control he, he also like he studied famous alcoholic performances like uh days of wine and roses under the volcano lost weekend an Arthur, I guess, <laughs> with Dudley Moore was like a, a big touchstone for him, which makes sense. Um, and, uh, and just like studied them and had this whole concept of like, what can I do that these people haven't already done? Like what new can I bring to it? <clears throat> and like the thing that I think he, he brings to it, in my opinion, that like uh, is this like weird, like this levity and this joy to his character as he's as he's killing himself like he's like his character is past the point of caring uh so he's just like let go and is just uh and and is dying but he plays it like with this weird kind of peace which i, I think like makes the the whole movie way more poignant yeah because there's not really there's not too many scenes where he's like um overacting being drunk that's not really what i mean it's like he's he's not performing being drunk well you know yeah when we've talked before about like how really like a nick cage performance is is either good or bad depending on how he's being used and and how then like the environment and it and if there's like a level of of heightened reality or, or something if the movie meets him where he wants to be and what's cool about this movie is that the whole point is that he is at this other level and no one else is, and it's sad. Right. So it, it, it's almost like, I mean, he's acting the same way he acts in Vampire's Kiss or whatever. You know, like there's, there's this like extremity to it, but, yeah. um, but it's, it's purposefully drawing a contrast to everything else around him. It's funny because what you're saying, that he, he brings this levity to the role, I've always looked at him as a man who is totally in control. He's finally decided he's going to end his life. And, and it's the joy of being in control. You never see him out of control, even though it's, he is drinking himself to death. You would assume that he's out of control. And yes, he's physically out of control, I think, sometimes. But he's, he is in constant control of the situation, of his life. And that has brought him great joy, I think, finally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in control because he's he's completely let himself be out of control. Because right. like the only the I mean, so I guess we should we should talk about the plot, but I mean what plot? Yeah, exactly. I mean it, it's basically, <laughs> basically Nick Cage is an alcoholic who is drank himself into uh despair and He loses his job as a screenwriter. Right. Yeah, whatever office that was. Like yeah. that, that, that was one of my favorite scenes when the, the woman walks in on him with the piles of scripts on his table and he's talking <laughs> in the phone upside down. I he's like, damn, phones don't work. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, he gets fired. I like this idea that there's just the, there's like a company that just keeps writer, like alcoholic yeah. writers on retainer. Yeah, like- <laughs> I, I didn't know what that was. But he, um, whatever, whatever like really charitable company this is, because that, they let him go and that scene kind of breaks my heart when the uh his boss calls him into the office yeah yeah man i mean that's that's the saddest that nick cage i mean in terms of he's like crying and he's like i'm sorry like that's he doesn't he doesn't the guy's like you're fired and he's like i'm sorry i know yeah and uh it's heartbreaking but i think that that might be the point when he actually just says fuck it right i feel like he is even he's more beholden to his boss than he is to himself, you know? Yeah. And I feel like when he's let down his boss, like that's worse than letting down himself. And, and I think that that's the one moment he breaks, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, and, and I think that's why, I mean, he, he moves to Las Vegas and, uh, just meets Elizabeth Shue, who's the hooker with a heart of gold. (laughs) (laughs) But really, a, a pink skirt. Yeah. Yeah. 
can can we bring back Elizabeth Shue? Is it time for oh, like yeah. a is it time for a shoe renaissance? Yeah, I dude. Think? She she's great in this. She she is amazing. She is I, I tell you, this role, I mean everything she does, she's amazing. I love her. <laughs> and and I mean like the it is such a trope, like the hooker with the heart of gold, but she like she acts so well that she transcends it. Like she mm-hmm. this character didn't necessarily have to be a character. Like it, it feels like a fantasy character in some ways, yeah. but she is so good that she like infuses it with some reality mm-hmm. that, that makes it, it makes her, she like wills that character into being a person. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just the two that. of them. Like the, they carry the whole movie. Yeah. And uh, it's just, she, she's incredible. But uh, going back to what you were saying, like for whatever reason, she uh, is attracted to him from the beginning of just like he's non-threatening, he's like fun, and I think if my and she wants to take care. I mean, she she basically her character spells it out at the very end of the movie, but she yeah. she likes the drama and she likes to be. I think she felt out of control with her life, and he his one thing is like don't you know just don't tell me to stop drinking don't ever try to make me stop drinking and that's like you know because i think he probably let down everyone else in his former life and there's pain in being in other people like despairing at your um at your like long just super long suicide yeah well because he's already made the decision so anyone else getting in the way that tries to like save him or stop him is just gonna, gonna make hurt. it harder on them and him right like he's he's already going down this path he made the decision and he doesn't want to you know get uh, other people's feelings and emotions like mixed up right and I, I think she enters into a, a relationship with him because he's from straight off he's like she's like why are you in las vegas he's like i'm gonna kill myself i'm gonna drink myself to death and you know, don't tell me to stop drinking. And she's like, okay, like this is a relationship with like safe boundaries where I don't have to get too attached because this person's gonna die. But I need some sort of anchor in my life. I need some sort of stability, and um, so I can hang out with this person and be this person's sort of mother figure. She Elizabeth. She starts out. Sarah starts the movie out, you know, under the control of her pimp, and he he's murdered early in the film, and she's sort of left. At that point, she's free. You know what I mean? Right. She can, she can do what she wants, and 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 I and you're right. I think you said it really well. She needs somebody to take care of. She needs somebody to mother. And and it's a sexual relationship sometimes, but you know he sleeps on the couch, and mm-hmm. even after it becomes there becomes like uh, romantic or like sexual in any way, like it's still very much like. She, she she's this mother. She's mothering him. And well, uh, I think that I think that's the important thing, though. Like in their relationship, is that it's not sexual. Like yeah, she she knows all she knows is how to relate to people with her body. Right. And he and she can't get him on that level. She cannot. He won't. He can't get an erection that first night. Right. They never sleep together. They're constantly every time they do try something gets in the way. His he throws over a, a table at the casino. He breaks the table at the motel you know they can never have sex and that's the only way she has i think she gets her worth you know she she gets her value from being able to turn men on and it's it starts to panic her through half right. the film, but that she can't and at a certain point nick cage ben cheats on her right after it, she does yeah so we can go talk about that later but no talk know. about it now i mean the- oh yeah well at a certain point, you know, Ben cheats on her, and and that I think is the it, it's the most heartbreaking thing for Sarah because yeah. he's not been able to give her his body mm-hmm. or to relate to her on that level, and she walks into her own home in her own bed, in her own bed, yeah, and sees him having sex, actual sex with a hooker, and uh, like she just she that's when she tosses him out you know right well i think it's that and i think she also didn't realize i mean this is kind of my reading of it but like she says she's like i've given you so much like leeway i've given you so much rope and i think she is saying that to herself too she's like okay well whatever i know i know who he is i'm okay with any of this and i think you know i'm he's a train wreck and i've accepted that and i think it's really important that the movie shows that like you know, even if you're in this kind of like 
this relationship that is the supportive relationship, he is still going to hurt you. Like he's still, his disease is still, it's still going to hurt people around him because no matter how much you're like, no, it's okay. And I, I think that's important. Yeah. She only, you know, I think that he, there's a lot to be said that he only cheats on her when he, when she asks him to stop drinking or to see a doctor, you know, and she breaks the rules. And I feel like what you said earlier is right on the money. Like he doesn't need someone getting in the way he's made his decision and just another person to disappoint or to, you know, hurt. That's not, can't handle that right now. Well, so yeah, and and then it ends. I mean, she they have sex and he dies. Like, mm-hmm. but but it, I, <laughs> that, that's literally how the movie ends. And yeah, yeah. he he he, yeah. he like looks at her as she's asleep, like the last thing he sees, and then he dies. And it's like you know, saying saying it like that sounds like the text is like so right. like. That's the uh, but but it's done very subtly, I think. It's so, oh my God, you guys, I'm so glad to be on this episode because this, this movie <laughs> haunts me. Like she being his angel, yeah. you know, she being the one person who didn't come to save him, but came to heal him in a way, his soul. And he brings, she brings to him this love that he doesn't have. And in the, in his final moment and you're in my final moment, I hope to see the person that I love like that finding me in some a hotel wherever you know she goes to great lengths to find him at the end yeah you know? he hunts him down and he, he opens his eyes and he's just he sees his angel and it's it's overwhelming if i watch it when i'm sad what do you what do you think this movie says about being that angel for somebody oh that's such a good question because she ends up like she she ends up just beaten and she 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 is not she's out of her home like she gets kicked out of her home not because of him necessarily i mean i don't know it it just yeah, because of him she the movie ends with her you know kind of you don't know where she's going to go after this and and she was his angel but now what does she have what does she have you know right she and, is she gonna now need an angel like it's you know like yeah. she was just at an earlier uh point in her downward slide and she thought that helping him would give her some sort of purpose and maybe i mean we don't know uh, where she's at at the end of the movie like we get those little like inner like uh talking head interviews with like it seems like maybe a therapist or someone throughout the movie that um are clearly happening after his death but we don't we don't know where she ends up. Do you think that this is going to spark some kind of, uh, you know, epiphany in her or she's going to have a lifestyle change or something like that, which is kind of, I think, what you would hope for in this kind of situation. But the whole movie leads you to believe that it's just she's going to keep living her life the way she did before right. Before she I mean, this him. at its core, this is a movie about two very damaged people, two very lonely, codependent people. Yeah. And- and um, and it's one of the only movies that I know that treats that codependency as it is. It's it's ugly. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not safe. It's not happy. It doesn't get wrapped up. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that she is going to go on and change. I think that she's going to struggle. You know, with probably you know probably for the rest of her life. I think importantly too, this this movie isn't a it's not an anti-alcohol movie or even a yep. movie that's necessarily like about alcoholism, like movie of the week style. Like it, it, it's, it, it's about codependency and it's about, you know, these like larger things that, that move people. And, uh, I think that's why it holds up because yeah. it's not a moralistic tale. You know, yeah. it, it, it doesn't color. There's the no situation. judgment. Right. It shows you how it is. And it's like you were saying, uh, Ephraim about the codependency. It's just very matter of fact in the way that it approaches the situation. It's like, this is the kind of people they are. Uh, this is the way that they live. And, um, yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's not any kind of like overarching, uh, morality or like lesson learned. Uh, You're right. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, do you guys know the story of the of the book Leaving Las yeah. Vegas? No, I, I didn't even know it was based until I watched it again. I I didn't realize it was even based on a book at all. Yeah. Well, what did you read about it? Um, well, what I know is that the guy who wrote it, he you know he suffered his whole life with depression, 
And this is sort of, you know, a lot, it's easy to say that it's semi-autobiographical. But when he, and he did end up killing himself the week after this went into production, I think. Oh, wow. That's really heavy. I didn't realize that. Yeah. His name was John O'Brien and he, he he wrote a couple of books before this and wrote this and, and it was like not a big book or anything like book of the week. It was just like, I think the director, Mike Figgs, um, found it in a used bookstore and was just, and he met up with uh, John O'Brien and was like, I want to make this a movie. And John O'Brien's like, whatever, I don't care. And then he, yeah, it goes into production and dude kills himself. Nick Cage yeah. said that there was, a, there, there was a day that they were shooting that John O'Brien's family came to the set and like basically watched him playing this their family that's member so like intense. his kids that's crazy that that rolex watch that he chose for his character to wear apparently was the same kind of watch that john o'brien wore so that right. like spooked everyone out yeah um anyway really heavy they they almost like didn't make the movie like after um that happened but they were like no this just has a but i i it's viewed by a lot of people as like his suicide note mm-hmm I mean, I'm, it, it is the it's whole literally the his, whole movie is just one long suicide note. Yeah, it's really heavy. You know, the, there's a Cheryl Crow connection too because yeah. she has long leaving Las Vegas, and she went on. I think it was Jay Leno or Letterman, and I think it was Letterman, and he asked her after she performed that song. You know, Cheryl Crow was like 30 at that time, and she'd been working for like 10 years to try to break. Right. And after she performed that song, the host asked her, you know, so is that song, you know, is autobiographical about your life? And she said, yeah. And that spun him and she basically erased him from the right, from the, you know, he didn't write the song, but he, it, but the people who wrote the song in her band had based it on his book also. Oh, Do you know what I mean? yeah. Like, take the title. So she kind of erased him in a public way that way. And so, the, you know, the, some people say that that had a lot to do with it too. Wow. You know, I read Sister talked about that a little bit and said that, you know, that, it wasn't her fault when when you're so de- he was a manic depressive his whole life too. Right. So. so this was before the movie though. What's that? This was before the movie that the yeah, Cheryl Crow think, stuff. Yeah, I think this that was like a year before the movie came out. That's fascinating. I yeah. I wondered about that song. I my in my head I thought that Cheryl Crow had like seen the movie or something. And she's like, <laughs> oh, that'd be a good song. But do you do you think there's a significance in the fact that it takes place in Vegas as opposed to like him staying in LA or like in New York or any other city? Leaving Atlantic City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I lived in Vegas for two years, and it's in my experience like everybody there is drunk or fucking crazy. Yeah, you know what I mean, or both. And you know, if you, to be in a place that is just twenty four hours, do what you want, it, you can. I mean, the addiction is throughout that town. So I think he says it, you know, he goes to Vegas so that he doesn't have to deal with liquor stores closing. Uh-huh. Um, and that's great for like a week or two, but then like, well, you know, and, and also no one's going to judge you there, really. Yeah. Like no one's, no one's really censuring him like in, in the way that, because that's every day in Vegas. Yeah. Like that bartender who's like, who's like, look, you're a young guy, like you don't need to do this. And he's just like, don't don't tell me how to live my life. And bartender's like, okay, I don't give a shit. Right. That's intense. Yeah. He he goes to the one city, or not the one city, but a city that's going to like aid and abet his suicide. Whereas like in Los Angeles, that early scene where he comes up on um what's his name? Richard Belzer? Is it the no. The the guy from Curb Your Enthusiasm who's in the Oh Richard Lewis. Richard Lewis. Yeah. Um, when he comes up on him at the table and, and he's like, Hey, and you just like this whole history is in the mm-hmm. subtext where they're just like, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's just like, here, take some, this is the cash I have, but get out of my life forever. Right. And, uh, but they don't do it in front of it, It's, I don't know. It, it's very sad. And he can't stay in LA because every, you know, everywhere he goes, presumably he's going to be letting someone down or he's going to be running into someone he knows. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. In Vegas, you can be anonymous. You can be, you know, he can get lost. He can, he can have no accountability. Yeah. Go somewhere uh, without any history. Yeah. Where, where no one knows your name. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes just this movie is so solid all around, like the direction, the editing, the sound design, because I, I I was it, it was interesting watching it 
um, kind of knowing this is my second time seeing it. So I, I knew that it, how, where it was going to go, that it was just, he was going to die and that was going to be it. And so I, I didn't get sucked in in the same way and was allowed to kind of like sit back and just watch how they put this thing together. And it's so like the, for one thing, like they, they simulate blackouts and like being drunk in a really well. And I feel like that's a thing that's, rare in movies to like that part when at the start, when he's like talking to the prostitute and like the sound just kind of like goes out and you can tell that they're just talking and talking, but it just like, doesn't really matter what they're saying. Like things like that. Or Mm -hmm. there were just different sequences where I was like, yeah, that is, that is what it feels like to be like out of control drunk. Yeah. You know, he, I think he shot it in 16 millimeter. Yeah. And he was like right there, like right. able to get right close to them. And it looks beautiful. Yeah. Dude, I love this movie so much. So do, uh, do you remember the first time you saw it and like how you, how you felt about it then? Um, yeah, I do. I will tell you the first time I saw it. What year did this come out? It was 90, 95, 95. Um, I saw it for the first time in 1999 when I moved to Las Vegas and I bought a DVD player and it was the first DVD I ever bought. And it was the only DVD, like it was the only DVD I had for probably a month. Whoa. Just not because I didn't want to buy others, but just because I could not unwrap myself in this movie. I don't know. Growing up, you see the romantic comedy or you see the love story and it's, what it is, but you never see a movie that's honest about like being an ugly person yeah, you know, and, and needing someone to do their part and just to be a body there for a moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's unflinching in that way. And, and I, it's hard to find a movie that compares to it. So I always say that it's my favorite love story, even though that's mm-hmm. twisted. Yeah. But that's because, you know, love sometimes is ugly. And even when, you are in a relationship with someone amazing, it still gets ugly sometimes. So, yeah. And, and her, I mean, her love of him is it's, it's realistic in how it portrays it, it, but it's, it's as close to like as selfless as like love can be. I mean, I don't think that any love is truly selfless because you're, you are yourself, you're wrapped up in yourself and you're, it's always feeding something in you, but like she is, is really just there for him. Well, see, I take I take issue with that because really? she's getting so much from him. She needs some after after Yuri dies. I okay, mean, she, yeah. She needs someone there. And she says, I've given you gallons of free will here. You can do this one fucking thing for me. And all she wants him to is just to be there. Right. You have to be at the house. Don't be ridiculous. You're moving into my house after like a day, right? Or right. Like, so she needs, she can't be alone. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and he's giving her as much, or she's taking from him as much as he's taking from her. Yeah, you're I, right. You're right. Yeah. But, but, the, but those skirts, I love her outfit. <laughs> yeah. She looks great. She's so like self-possessed. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to her? What happened to Elizabeth Shue? She's married to, what's that guy's name? Um, she's married to the guy who did An Inconvenient Truth. Al Gore. Yeah, no. <laughs> She's a side piece. Um, whatever that guy's name is, but I met her at Arclight in like 05, I think, when that movie came out or something. Oh, really? Or his next, yeah, his, ne- he, his next movie, I think. She was at the premiere and she was pregnant and I was like, oh my God. And I got to hug her. Yeah. You hugged her? Uh, when you do your Elizabeth Shue podcast, please have me on. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we'll we'll do that after the Val Kilmer podcast and <laughs> after the uh, uh, there's uh, I don't know there's another one we were joking about doing. Oh, but. she was in Hollow Man. <laughs> <laughs> Hollow Man, dude, a a bacon cast. That's yeah, what we should do. That, honestly, that's that, that that's the best one. idea since this one, and I don't think people have done that. Whereas, like, <laughs> twenty other people have done the Nick Cage podcast. Yeah, you know how hard it was for me to find this. You can cut this part out, but when Michael Cooper told me about this podcast, yeah, I looked. I saw all these Nicolas Cage podcasts, and I was like looking through the description, trying to find your name, Miles, 
And then finally, Cooper told me like two days later, no, it's Heat Seeking Panther. And it was right in time to like download all my favorite episodes or all the episodes from my favorite movies for my road trip to uh-huh. get to number so I listened to Zandali. I listened to Moonstruck. <laughs> I love Zandali. Zandali was my sexual awakening. Okay. Zandali, Moonstruck, and uh, uh, Vampire's Kiss are my three favorites. Dude, I mean, those are all great. Well, I don't know. If, yeah. Zandali is out of control. Out of control. When he fucks her on the washer. Yeah, during the dinner uh. party. There, there were some good uh, moments in this too. I mean, if the story wasn't so like crushingly depressing, like you, you could take them out of context and make a really funny like <laughs> Nick Cage. Uh, you know, it fits right in next to Vampire's Kiss or whatever. There's right. that, that part where he comes in and he says, "I feel like a ki- the cling clang king of the rim ram room." <laughs> 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 or he's at he's at the bar uh, with the the girl who's fighting with her boyfriend, who mm-hmm. and. Um, and she's like, she's like trying to size him up, and he just says like, "Little brown nose gnomes with a slingshot." <laughs> she's like, "Oh, okay, this guy's fun, right?" Or that scene in the bank with that woman. Yeah, yeah. right. Where yeah. he's talking into the his tape recorder. <laughs> yeah, I think we should also talk about Sting. I I guess Michael Figgis was a musician. He did the score for this movie too, which is mm-hmm. cool, and. Um, and he's a close friend of Sting because he played in a British R&B band called Gasboard with Brian Ferry. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Weird. Huh. So he like went to Sting's mansion and like castle or whatever and uh, they just played some jazz standards. <laughs> That's amazing. Right? I love I think the music is so when watching it again last week that you know there's such an improvisational element to jazz all the time Mm -hmm. and you kind of never know where nick cage is gonna go you know at any moment he's flipping over a table or falling down or or yeah i think the choice of of this kind of soundtrack was really good because they could have gone with something like super somber and downbeat Mm -hmm. all the time to try to really like drive that home and i think it would have been to the detriment of the tone of the movie if they had Mm -hmm. done that and so you know, while it's not necessarily an upbeat soundtrack, uh, I, I think that the fact that some of, some of it's very light and like yeah, jazzy, like really, um, really is a is a good uh, offset of what's happening on screen. Yeah, it still sounds like a party. And right. I mean, that's Vegas. Everyone's yeah. drinking themselves to death, and they're all <laughs> fucked up. And there's you know there's a there's a fucking party going on, and like someone's trying to have a good time. Yeah. Well, and and that's like like talking about how there's all this levity in his performance. Like the movie has levity moment to moment, but it its tone is so controlled that it's never funny. Like right. um it it doesn't it's not like um I I don't know. There there are some movies that try and do something similar to this where you the those scenes like stick out and as being like too funny or too zany to like clash with the tone of everything else but his both the performances are dialed in like the direction and editing and the music and everything is dialed in in such a way that it creates i mean it's almost like assembled like a jazz song i don't know if that's like too too far out there to say but um it there's something musical in the way that it's edited and put together that it it it, it has this singular direction of just well you can you said mike figgis is a musician like, yeah it's totally, that's what it is he obviously is scoring this film like i mean he's seeing the film as a piece of music because and it, right it, it flows that way yeah it does it it, it sucks you in to its own like tra- trajectory at, like a song and yeah. I love that it reuses the same songs. Like, I mean, that's it's probably a budget thing too. But the fact that it it repeats the same like jazz standards and there's that that song when he's like burning down his house or no burning yeah. burning his stuff and um, yeah. that's like just super fun and upbeat that plays it. And I feel like when when you're on a bender, that is how it is. You you are like playing the same shit over and over mm-hmm. again, like. And it it really gives it a sense too of being a spiral. Yeah, you know, it's totally. like you 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 keep it's the same thing over and over until mm-hmm. he dies. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. At the risk of sounding like the biggest leaving Las Vegas fangirl of all time, I bought the soundtrack after seeing the movie, and I used to you know that moment in the movie where he's singing uh, "Driving Down the Highway in the Batmobile." Yeah. 
Yeah, I put that, there's a little clip of that on the soundtrack, and I would start every mix CD from like 2000 to 2010 with that little clip. That's amazing. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> and also, don't worry about sounding like the biggest like fanboy, because uh, that's why you're on this episode. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Welcome, Yeah. <laughs> His performance is so nuanced too. Like I want to say, like it's not just wacky all over the place. Like he, it really encompasses the whole spectrum of an alcoholic because he can be like kind of suave and cool at times. Like not very often, but I don't know. Like there's this thing of if you've ever hung out with um, people who are alcoholics and been emotionally involved with them, that you can get into this this pattern too where you're like oh no this is fun no i could do this forever i could hang out with this person forever and i don't mind that they're like this and i i mean to repeat myself like i think that's why it's so important that he sleeps with that other woman and like elizabeth shoe gets knocked out of that spiral even if that you know um, that accelerates his death like it, it just narratively like you kind of are put under his spell under ben's spell watching this movie because yeah. you get into the pattern of it and it does seem like they could just party like this forever. And he's so charming, you know, yeah. he's such a charming character. He's such a charming actor. I think Nick Cage anyway, but yeah. Like, yeah. When Ben, you know, that moment, um, after he sleeps at her house, I think for the first time and he wakes up and it's like the sunlight's hitting his face and he just kind of looks at her. Yeah. He's and a, it's like all the love in the world is in those eyes and, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's a beautiful moment. He's so, there's something so like beautiful and simple about his character now that he is at rock bottom. (laughs) I think that's what, what makes it, what gives this film that dimension, that extra dimension is that like you see (laughs) that there's this like, I don't want to say Zen, but there, you know, like I said, it it feels like it could go on forever. He, as long as he has alcohol, that's what he, that's what he needs. Which he's in Vegas, so yeah, he will. Right. <laughs> you, you know, he he doesn't need clothes. He doesn't need he doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need anyone or anything. He just like needs alcohol. And um, I was a teenager when I saw the movie for the first time, and so and I hadn't seen it probably in a year when I watched it this week. So paying attention, paying attention a lot to you know, when he's shopping at the beginning and putting all that alcohol in, it never occurred to me how much fucking alcohol that is. Because when I was young, I was a teenager, all alcohol was a lot of alcohol, you know? But now, just looking at it, like, oh my God. Dude, same. I, yeah, I saw this in high school, and I I had the same the same thing when I was watching. I was like, those are handle after handle after I handle. He's just popping them in. Or, I mean, there's so many, like shots of him just downing whole handles of alcohol he's just always got a bottle in his hand the entire movie and the scene where he wakes up and like crawls to the refrigerator oh my yeah with the orange juice to make like the saddest screwdriver and he's just like he's just tremoring the entire film it's yeah i mean that part in the bank before he comes back with the alcohol where he has um he can't even write yeah. yeah They, um, he said too, in, um, researching the movie, he'd seen that there, there hadn't been a, uh, a movie about an alcoholic that talked about delirium tremens that like went into that. And so, and he, so he didn't even know how to, how to do it because there, um, so he like went out and talked to a bunch of alcohol. He actually, he had a friend of the Coppola family. Um, it didn't say what he did for that he he like he worked for them but he sounds like he was also their friend and he was an alcoholic or like a drunk he he's called himself a drunk and uh Nick Cage just had him come with him to Las Vegas as his like drunk consultant <laughs> so <Wow>. while <laughs> while like like there's this story about um his his friend i think his name is Tony like coming in and uh just like looking like complete shit and just collapsing under the makeup mirror in his trailer and just like going oh. into a fetal position. And Nick Cage is like, yeah, I want, I want that. I want that to be what yeah. I am. Like, 
it's the only movie I've ever seen that actually deals with the physical with like the, yeah. the, the physical of being an alcoholic. Like, you know, so many other movies when someone's an alcoholic, they're just loud or they're throwing up or they're just like yeah. generally an asshole. To people right. Yeah. It, it usually just means you're an asshole. Right. But in this movie, they get so, sp- or I guess Nick's Nick Cage gets so specific with the actual physicality of just being drunk 24 seven. And it makes it so much more intense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, like it, it kind of elevates it from, from what it would be sort of cartoony, I guess, otherwise to just, um, you know, have him be able to just stumble sometimes or slur his words, but he's, yeah, with, with, I mean, he's just literally like physically addicted to the alcohol. Yeah. The whole movie. He's, he's a dancer. He's a trained dancer and he mo- uses his body more than a lot of actors oh, yeah. in, in a way that like is often cartoonish, but the, his physicality it, throughout this whole movie is just like unhinged and it makes it, it like makes you feel like uneasy and nauseous or I think like because he just always you know he's like collapsing all the time and like just shaking and like knocking shit over and he knows it his character knows it too like he says as like a disclaimer he's like this could get bad. Like I've been pretty like restrained around you when she's asking him to move in. He's like, I knock stuff over. Like it's, it gets really ugly, but yeah, he's so physically committed in a way. Like you don't even realize it because it's such like a whole performance. You know, you don't realize the physical, uh, just the, what he had to endure, you know, just doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, and it is so nuanced because I, it never occurred to me, like I'm not an actor, but it never occurred to me. Like, yeah, his. I mean, he's always in every role. His body is always in every role. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In, in Moonstruck, for example, he's like super physically committed to that role. Um, but yeah, here it's just like it's a sad, it's a sad body. Like when he, I'm thinking of when they're in at that motel, you know, and he falls on the table. Yeah, I was thinking about yeah. that too. I'm a prickly pear, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get. I guess that scene was like a, a big deal to get that underwater shot. Um, uh-huh. they, cause they only had, they had like, I think they had $5 million to make this movie, which mm-hmm. isn't, isn't a lot. So they thought that they weren't going to be able to do that shot, even though like everyone really wanted to do it, but they were like driving around and just saw this above ground pool with like a portal or like portals <laughs> coming into it. Uh-uh, so really? yeah. So they like, wow. yeah, they just went there like, you know, one person with a camera and like Nick Cage and Elizabeth Shue and just like stole the shot. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Also, they they didn't have shooting permits for. They probably had a permit for that, but they didn't have permits to shoot on the street in uh, in Las Vegas. So a lot yeah, of the, a lot of those like, were like one takes. Like they yeah. they would do a take and then get out. That's like, that's crazy. That's I mean, yeah. To do be at that like level, like to be at that level of pressure, and then still to pull out these performances, you know? Yeah, I feel like it. It just adds to the performances. They seem desperate. So he won this. He won an Oscar. He won an this Oscar. Movie. Is he, this his only Oscar? His only okay. Oscar. I, I I don't know if it's his only nom, but it's the only one he won. And he was kind of like I guess they released this in December because they knew they were like this is going to get on some top ten lists, like you know, like and so the Academy. I think I I feel like the Academy really likes uh, when someone does a performance that is without vanity and. I think this is like, you know, whether it's good or not, they just love performances where someone um, is willing to get really ugly and, and human. And right. uh, this is about as ugly and human as Nick Cage gets, I think. Oh. I can't think of another movie where he's been so just raw. Yeah. And just unhealthy. Like he looks so unhealthy in this movie. Mm-hmm. This is the first appearance of his, um, I don't know, I call it his adaptation look (laughs) i don't really know what to call it but there's a couple movies where he has he lets his hair just grow kind of unkempt and he's got like like sagging like bags under his eyes and he talks really slow and just looks kind of disaffected because a lot of the other movies he's in the physicality is so much of it he's very up or, you know, especially in like Moonstruck or Zandali where he's like a sexual firebrand. Right. And then, but, you know, uh, there's, there's a couple movies, this and Adaptation being, I think, the two best examples where he 
there is no vanity involved yeah. in the way that he looks. Like he commits a physically one hundred percent to the part, and and uh, and I think that's that is rare for someone of his acting caliber, where they just literally don't give a shit how they look in the movie, right. you know, and they try to look as like unkempt Schlubby. as possible, right? Dude, actually, IMDb says that his only other Oscar nominations for adaptation. So there you go. Okay. Hey. But uh, I, you guys are the experts, but I mean. And listening to your show, you talk about Nick Cage's hair being as important in every yeah. role, and, and certainly here, you know, it's thinning. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not. I mean, it's it's it. It reveals a messy guy, you know. Yeah, I, he must have gotten hair plugs or something at some point. I feel like coming up, maybe for The Rock. I don't know. Well, but because yeah, yeah. um, I'd never noticed before. Um, before we did this podcast, how you you do see his his hair thinning and and you know just receding like a like a person, and uh, but his hair now is very unreal. And right, it's not, <laughs> he doesn't look he doesn't look. Very it's wait, called Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm interested to see when that point is. But it, yeah, it's very much a part of his character in this movie, in the last couple of movies that we see, like. He looks, it, this is a weird, uh, I guess this movie and Kiss of Death were him kicking back against, uh, he did the Sunshine Trilogy before this, which is. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, which what? one of them being trapped in paradise also took place in Vegas. And oh, yeah. what an insane, that would be an insane so did Honeymoon double in feature, Vegas. actually. Or no, that's the one I was thinking yeah, Honeymoon of. Not, in Vegas. Not, not trapped in paradise. Yeah, Honeymoon in Vegas. But a Honeymoon in Vegas, Vegas, leaving Las Vegas double feature. Dude, yeah, <laughs> you see the ups and then you see the down. Oh my God. <laughs> Play them, yeah. Play uh, play honeymoon in Vegas last. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like part two, like uh, yeah. Actually, dreams come true here. <laughs> uh, I was thinking too. This movie really follows in a long tradition of um, like cinematic drives to Las Vegas. Like I was thinking of like Swingers or like Fear and Loathing. Fear and, loathing. Uh, and and there's I mean there's other examples you could think yeah. of, but the the you know within the first part of any movie taking place in Vegas, I feel like a lot of the setup is that feeling of the epic drive, you know, where you're going from wherever you were to Vegas. Yeah. Um, and, and this one is more depressing. Like the whole film is more depressing than a lot of other films that tread the same ground. But um, yeah, but there's something about that drive that just yeah. like set, like sets you up very well for the rest of the movie. Um, I think that se- that whole sequence is super important. Uh, like him, I think it's important that he never ever talks about having a wife and son. Like it never gets mentioned. It, yeah, but they, they just show the pictures at show the, the beginning, picture. and that's it. And yeah. uh, of him he, when he burns all of his stuff, and he he burns all of his scripts and just everything, and then that neat row of trash bags that's out on the curb, and then like again, that was another scene where him him drinking and driving. And, and like LA is coming through super fast and it's just like, you know, weird, yeah. weird remembrances from the road. Like those weird gangsters at the uh, gas station who he sees and you know, it, it, I don't know. It's, it seemed like a binge. That scene where he drinks, you know, from the vodka when the cops right next to yeah. him. Like, I mean, he's got, he's got nothing left to lose, you know, <laughs> what do you think of Julian Sands in this movie? <laughs> I I really like him. At first, I thought he was kind of the most misplaced part of mm-hmm. the film. But I think mm-hmm. what some of that comes from is just the fact that because, because the whole movie is carried by Cage and Elizabeth Shue, that finding any other, you know, main character to try to, like, shoehorn in there would just necessarily make them kind of stilted and... and I think he did good with what he had. I kind of wanted to see more of the relationship of yeah. him and, 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 and Elizabeth Shue before, um, before he kicks her out. And then we're led to believe he gets like, yeah, he gets murdered in that hotel room. She, um, you know, she, he kicks her out so that he, he kind of like saves her life. I think. Yeah, yeah definitely. Hey. Yeah. Um, do you, uh, I was gonna ask you a question going back to what you said. You said, um, Oh, you, you were talking earlier about uh, those sort of talking head interviews. Yeah. Um, I had read, I don't know where I read this, but I, I've kind of known for years that she came up with that. Elizabeth Shue 
f- shot those with Mike Figgis as a way to sort of flesh out her character. Oh, and he, yeah. And he, yeah, and he really wanted to use them in the film. And in the first cut, his producer said, nope, take those out. And they took them out and the movie didn't play as well without them. You didn't really get to know Sarah. So he put them back in. And that was like the last edition he made before theatrical release yeah i feel like those scenes are such an integral part of the movie yeah i mean i i can't imagine it landing anywhere near as good as it does if it didn't have those inner cuts i I think it's really smart because it it, um otherwise it feels more like a story about him just him and she she is this more like fantasy support character and uh you know i i feel like she kind of spells it out in the last the very last cut like the very last thing that you see where she's, I, for, I forget what she says, but um, just being like, you know, I, oh, like I loved him because of the drama and this and that, and I needed that. And, but I think they're super important that they're in there. I was going to say uh, about Julian Sands too, like I, I felt that also he seemed cartoonish, but then um, I, I thought it was important that he wasn't just a one dimensional, like we see him like hitting her and just being shitty. Like right. we also see him in the pawn shop tra- because he's fucking desperate for money. And we right. see him and, and that's last scene between them where she comes in and he's like listening to the wall and like just super paranoid. It was like, it's that, uh, it's not that, you know, these people, these characters go to Vegas and there are bad people also in Vegas. It's that there are desperate people in Vegas. Like he's not a just a bad guy. He's just a desperate person who's using another person. And Which is exactly what they kind of both are. Yeah, like, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. So he he almost like you know it, it would have been a worse movie, but he could have been another main character if he hadn't died. Like in a way, it's a weird codependency triangle yeah. going on there. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's heavy, um, but critical high point of Nick Cage's career in the uh, unauthorized biography of Nicolas Cage, the man behind Captain Corelli by Ian Markham Smith and Liz Hodgson. Um, there's, a, there's a whole chapter entitled "Not Grieving Las Vegas" because uh. because he was <laughs> he was happy. <laughs> the next chapter is "Solid as the Rock." <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Evren, what are your, we, we ask every guest this when they come on, but what are your top three cage roles and why? Man. Um, number one is Ben here in leaving Las Vegas. Cause I feel like you've, I've never seen a performance by any other actor that is as raw and as real and as ugly and as fun, you know, like he's a, he's a ugly character, but he's, he doesn't know. I mean, I don't, He's having fun killing himself, you know? Yeah. So there is that joy. So I love this movie. I love Moonstruck because I lost my hand. Yeah. I lost my bride. Like, I love Moonstruck. And then um, I would have to say Vampire's Kiss because yeah. I, I guess I love Nick Cage the most when he's just like fucking punk rock. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what is he thinking? That was the most punk rock movie he made for sure. Yeah. Like, what is he thinking? So I love that movie. I love all three of those movies. I mean, okay. So those are obvious choices though. Like let's, (laughs) uh, Uh, so, so give give us a four and a five cuts. Yeah. I can do a second tier too. Okay. So, okay. So number four would be, um, Con Air. Yeah. Because, because I mean, he, he turned himself into like a, his his version of like a leading man action hero. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Which is so, so far off the mark. Yeah, it's so bizarre. Exactly. God exactly. damn it! And it's so yeah, like he is so punk rock in that one also. And then it would be a tie after that between Zandali, which we talked about earlier, right. and um, I love adaptation. Bringing out the dead. Yeah, bringing, bringing out the dead. See, I haven't seen that, and that one I think is the most. Uh, that movie is the one of the later years that I'm most excited to see for the first time. Because uh, just from what I've read about it and heard other people talk about it, it's I, I can't wait. You're going to love it. He's so good in that movie. Yeah, I, I that's another one I saw in high school, and I didn't really have the context of like seeing other Scorsese films or seeing like that I – but I remember seeing it on TV and being like, that was really good. How have yeah. I never heard of this? I don't usually have business with Martin Scorsese. Like he doesn't make movies for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, 
not a heterosexual white male, but <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So I don't like, I don't fantasize over Jodie Foster or anything like that. Although I can get the heart of the film. I can get the heart. Would you want to go to Shutter Island? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> but Bringing Out the Dead, my God, I, I love that movie. Yeah. We're about to get into some really fun, fun movies. Mm-hmm. I love Face Off, but, and I love Con Air. Yeah. Um, adaptation's great. I mean, Birdie's good, you know, like his early Birdie. I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed Birdie and for yeah. just coming kind of out of left field. It's not a movie that I'd really ever heard much about. And quite frankly, reading the synopsis or whatever, the subject matter seemed like it would be just kind of another of his mid 80s throwaways. But that one, I, th- it that sticks one actually, with you. Yeah, it does. It sticks with it you. It does definitely. For all of its failings, it's a unique, interesting movie. What's the name of that one movie? Is it Snake Eyes? That one's good too. Snake Eyes, 8 Millimeter. Yeah. Eight, oh my God, 8mm changed my life also. Eight, yeah, eight, you should be on our 8mm episode. Oh my God, <laughs> an intense movie. Yeah, no shit. Um, yeah, that yeah. track was, what was his name? Oh, but anyway, yeah, so good. Yeah, the 90s were pretty good for Nicolas Cage. This, I think this was his, well, no, it wasn't his high point. I think that, what do you, I guess the 80s, you can't top like Raising Arizona and... Uh, yeah, I think I think Moonstruck, Raising Arizona, Vampire's Kiss yeah. is like his first peak. Yeah. And then he peaks again with this uh, through like the rock on air face yeah. off. And mm-hmm. then... Uh, then he hits the family man and it all falls apart. And it all falls apart after that. I, I agree too, like the family man. Right? It's, it's actually funny because Dave and I have pinpointed with scientific accuracy <laughs> that the family man is the beginning of the end. We're really just yeah. proving that theory. That's actually the whole point of this podcast. <laughs> I can't even say like how, like since fam- since the family man, I don't know how many I've seen. Right. Like what year was that? Two th- 2000. Was it? Yeah. So adaptation came out like two or three years after that. And that was, you know, yeah. that was an anomaly in the, in the spike. Well, uh, I- um, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. A, that's a thing. And uh, a Herzog classic. Yeah, and, and uh, I'll go to bat for the National Treasure movies because I don't know why. I don't know why I like them so much, but it's like Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin Gates, Benjamin <laughs> Franklin Gates. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I I think they stem from a place of. Hey, you know who should have played Indiana Jones? <laughs> like 20 years ago. <laughs> right. And so they decided to make the National Treasure movies to rectify that oh mistake. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, it feels like the Da Vinci Code, but for people who, uh, stupid people who know that they're stupid and not stupid people who think they're smart. Right. He's making movies, like, he's making so many movies. You know, he's like constantly just putting out movies, movies, movies. And uh, so since Dave and I started this podcast, last august i think we we recorded the first episode uh he has made six films or he's released six films and he has like five or six others in in production or pre-production right now uh so we're gonna until he is dead or retired we're gonna be playing catch up with him you're never gonna stop no no we'll never ever ever be able to catch up with him no i just because i don't see him being from from my completely speculative idea of his finances I don't think he's going to be uh, out from underwater while he's alive. I think some of this is going to fall on Weston. <laughs> Weston's going to Weston's acting career is going to like really fucking take off. Dude, Weston, Weston is is Weston the same son that is in the band? Yeah, yeah. Weston was in the black metal band. Okay, well, I have a story. I have. I actually talked to Nicolas Cage, and I think that you guys might appreciate my story since this is a Nicolas Cage podcast. You talked to Nicolas Cage. Wow, I, I can't I believe you didn't. Lead you didn't lead with, with this. that. Yeah, you're you waiting till the end. Anyway, so, in 2005, I worked at ArcLight when I first moved to LA in 2005 through 2007, and I think it was like 2006, somewhere in the middle of working at ArcLight. I was working. I always, I always had the phone shifts and the guest services shifts, and then we get a phone call. And I'm working phones. I'm working the phone shift that day. And it's Nicolas Cage on the phone. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he's like, hello, um, this is Nicolas Cage. I wanted to let you know that my son, I can't remember his name, but now I guess it's Weston. Uh, my son will be coming in tonight on a date and we're going to be sending some paparazzi behind him. Um, so we had a no, we had a strict no paparazzi rule at Arclight. This was when it was only one Arclight. 
Uh-huh. And so we would do all the premieres there. And we had, and the, there's like a secret, there's secret catacombs at Arclight where like the really famous people can come and enter the movie late. So they don't get seen. <laughs> so he knew about, he knew about that, of course. So he's like, and he knew about our no paparazzi rules. So he said, I'm going to be sending my, or my son's going to be there on a date tonight. And I'm going to be sending some paparazzi behind him to photograph him. So please do not kick them out. I said, of course not. Of course we won't. And then I told my boss, I was like, oh my God, Nicholas Cage. And then that was it. But that's, <laughs> that's, that's my story. Wait, so okay, so they were sending in paparazzi to follow Weston Cage to raise his profile? Exactly. They were trying to, you know, he was trying to, he, all I knew was he was in a band or like he was a goth rocker or something. Yeah. Break his punk band or something. Well, I, I highly, highly recommend following him on Instagram. Oh, um, really? Yeah. He, he, he's, uh, there's some really good moments in there. He recently had, uh, I think, Easter br- uh, brunch with Nicolas Cage in a really strange photo. <laughs> Um, yeah, the check, moment we're done here, I'm going. There. Check it out. I I still dream about having Weston Cage on as a special guest. That would be like the ultimate get for us, or, is to have Weston on the show. Or Cal L. I don't know how old Cal L is now. He's probably like 13. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow trick him into being in this. <laughs> like even more than Nick Cage, because you could just tell Nick Cage you're filming a movie and he'll be there. Right. Right. Or he would demand an absurd sum of money to build a third pyramid mausoleum. Yeah. Honestly, if we threw Nick Cage enough money, I bet he would, he would join. But, uh, yeah. Or that'd be so great to like get him to talk about like one movie. Like, yeah. So, or, or asking, asking Nick Cage his favorite of his own roles yeah. and, then to, and then invite him on that episode. I'll bet you yeah. it would be a really weird deep cut too that like none of us works back yeah. then. Yeah. It's like time to kill or some shit. No man, I peaked with Rumblefish. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like, or it's like, you know, one from like last year, <laughs> like that one that I think that, that's currently in post production. Yeah, yeah, that that battleship one that uh, only got released in like Puerto Rico or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, anyway, on on that story, I feel like that's a good place to close yeah. it out. Uh, before we sign off, Efren, uh what uh, any projects you're working on that you want to plug? Um, yeah, sure. I have my own podcast. It's called Drive All Night, the Songs of Tori Amos. And uh, we're at songsoftoriamos.com. And, and you're, th- you're three albums deep now, right? Go yeah. On. So basically, we do what you do. We go through every Tori Amos song in great detail. Um, we get, you know, we try to get, you know, people that have worked with her and super fans of every song to talk about why they love the track. And so cool. we're. we're 10 year long fan project that we, we started last wow. year. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, we're definitely no strangers to getting obsessed with uh, certain artists. Yeah. Um, you know, it like becoming codependent with uh, a hooker with a heart of gold, uh, becoming codependent with Nicolas Cage uh, through his movies has really given my life some structure. <laughs> it's funny because to watch a person's body of work or to really assess, you know, in an intellectual way, a person's body of work and like see where they started and where they end up, you know, it, it makes you appreciate even the lesser films for me, at least it makes me appreciate even the lesser Tori Amos songs, you know, yeah, as a step in her career as just a film that he made because he had an extra month, you know, like it, it all becomes part of a bigger story. And I yeah. think no matter, no matter how it ends, the story of Nicolas Cage and the story of Tori Amos, they're success stories. So they'll never, those two, yeah, like we, since we started our podcast, she's put out a musical and her new album comes out in September. We're never going to catch up. Wow. So I feel for you guys too. <laughs> like we're in the <laughs> well, good luck out there doing the work yeah, that too. no one, yeah. no one called on us to do. <laughs> uh, uh, all right. Uh, as always, uh, we are on Instagram at heat seeking Panther. Please follow us. We post, uh, all sorts of weird yeah. cage related ephemera. I, I guess that's it. Cool. Well, Efren, thank you, thank so, you much, so much, man. This was Thanks wonderful. Thanks for having you guys. So much fun. I love leaving Las Vegas. I'm yeah, so absolutely. And uh, I mean, since since you're uh, since you're a fellow super fan, uh, there there will, we have many more to go. Uh, so we'd love to have you back on at some point in the future Literally, for another I'm film. I'm ready cool. at all times to talk to you. Great news. Great. Sounds good. Cool, man. All right. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Take care. They have sex, and he dies. They have sex, and
Next week we're doing the the Rock. The Rock, yeah, that's the next this one. This is we're like we're in the big leagues. I uh, wait, hold on one second. I have a fun fact. Yeah, so so after this, um, Abel Ferreira wanted Nick Cage to be in the funeral in a role that later went to Christopher Walken, um, but uh, he that big Rock money came in and he just he, he had to go for it. Wait, there's something more to that. He he had become an arts like an art house darling again, you know. After a, a little bit, a couple of years in the weeds, and uh, then um, this is the this is the turning point where he he turned. I feel like he turned down Abel Ferrer and was just from then on was kind of like, no, I want that money. He was he was his own man. He really took control of his career um, in a way that he hadn't before. Oh, you know what? Here here's a great a great quote. There's less to rebel against when people are listening to you. Like that, that he like suddenly like Hollywood was letting him into the rooms that he wasn't let into before and he he had people's ears and now we get the family man. Yeah. <laughs> That's how punk rock dies, I guess. The family man. <laughs> Well, I'm psyched again. We've said this before in in the last couple episodes, but the next few movies coming up are just going to be it's going to be a blast. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, cool. that's that's it. Do you want to uh, do you want to give me a little uh, Panther oh, roar, yeah, let's, Dave? Let's hear it. I like how there's like a 20 second intro on this video too. It's like, why don't you just give me the just roar up the front? Roar. Like, why am I why am I waiting for it? One of these days, we'll get the timing right. <laughs>